Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. All right, we're going to move to our time of the sermon, and we'll start with a scripture reading here in just a minute. So, Beth, go ahead and come on up here, and uh, we're going to just continue leaning into a pattern that we've been talking about for the last few weeks uh, in the times that I've spoken that really stems from the work of New Testament scholar Bob Mulholland, who was one of my advisors in my master's program, and uh, just really thankful, I think, for, for my money. Mulholland's work on the spiritual life of the New Testament is some of the most accessible and deep stuff that is out there, which is why we keep coming back to it. So credit to Dr. Mulholland for his work, and after Beth reads the scripture, I'll begin with a prayer that Mulholland wrote that will lead us into our time this morning. But let's begin with our scripture reading. It's from Colossians chapter 3. We've read this a couple of times over the last few weeks, so let it sink just a layer deeper as we hear uh, the word of the Lord again. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up to the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. Put off, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The wrath of God is coming upon disobedient people because of these things. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things. But now, you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, whose cruciform love penetrates the depths of our being, whose resurrection power awaits to raise us out of our deadness and into loving union with you and transformed living in this world. Help us. Help us as we consider the disciplines of abandoning our false self, as we hear deep within the voice of cruciform love calling us to come and die. And in that dying, to find transformed life. We ask this in the name of the one who died 
and rose and lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we spent the last year on our big enough story, walking through the story of Scripture, and we're almost done, uh, which I know some of you are like, please, God, make it end. We've spent a year on this, and we're almost done, I promise. In fact, we've now moved into Act 5. Um, we are in the final act of this big story, and we're using the framework that N.T. Wright sets out to talk about this, this story of Scripture, the story that we find ourselves in as well. And with the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have entered into Act 5. Jesus passes his Spirit on to a small band of believers, and after all that has happened, all the trial, all the estrangement from God, all the difficulty, all the suffering, all the exile, God is with us. Us yet. And so Act 5 begins at Pentecost and it takes shape in the early church, but I want to remind us that we are still living in Act 5 now. See, sometimes we hold our Bibles and we, we see the conclusion and we think the story is all in the past, but the story is happening now and we play a part in it. In fact, we are part of what it means for the story to reach its culmination, to reach its telos. And that means that the way you and I live somehow matters in the shaping of this big story. We are God's people in the world, helping usher God's creation toward its intended end, and, uh, and so it matters how we live. We are invited out of the cheap seats. We're invited onto the stage. We improv the way of Jesus, taking our cues from all that has come before. We improv the way of Jesus so that we might help God as he has empowered us through the Holy Spirit to recreate the world through the Spirit, right? And so God is at work. Now, we know how the story ends. We know where this thing is going. The God who created in the beginning will recreate a new creation. And in fact, that may not be the end of the story. That may be the beginning of the story, if we can believe it. But we know that the world is going that way. And so our task is to discover through prayer, through the Holy Spirit, how do we get from where we are today to where the end will be at the end of all things? And part of that has to be worked out on the fly. But part of it we do know, and so here's how we're going to walk through the end of this big story over the, the months ahead. Um, we are going to, this week and next week, begin, uh, well, finish exploring how a life with the Holy Spirit radically transforms our inner life, what is happening inside of us, and we'll, we'll finish using this pattern that we've been talking about that Paul gives us. We'll get into that in just a minute. But then we're going to shift outward for the rest of June and July. We're going to look at how the early church understood their work in the world. In the light of Pentecost, we know this much, that we are invited through the Holy Spirit into both a transformed inner life and outer life. Right, so we'll talk about that inner life part this week and next week. But then, in light of that image of God being recrafted in us, we have work to do in the world. We have stories to tell in the world. We have good news to share in the world. And so we're going to ask ourselves, how did the early church understand their work in the world? And then finally, in, in August, we'll end this big enough story by looking at the part of the end that we do have, which is the book of Revelation. Right? What can we learn about the way God's story, it comes to a close in the book of Revelation, and so we'll begin our new ministry year with the end and find ourselves in the light of that. So that's where we're going. 
Now, I want to bring us back to where we were when I spoke last time a handful of weeks ago. We've been working through this pattern that Paul gives us through his letters, and uh, Mulholland's the one who really reduces it down to this pattern. But for me, this becomes a cheat sheet for how spiritual formation might work in the New Testament world, in the, in the light of the Holy Spirit being with us. This is shorthand for how we can get in on God's Spirit, raising the Christ life up in us. And so so we've been working through this pattern. We keep coming back to it because for me, if we can get this inside of us, we are going to start noticing these dynamics at play in our daily life. And so the pattern works like this, that we participate in Christ dying. Paul says, since you died with Christ, the false self, this wounded self, the, 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 the part of us that is estranged from God, it must have an encounter with the death of Jesus. There is a cross for us that exists in the Christian life, and it will involve a real loss of all that previously defined and dominated our life. But the story does not end there. Then we get in on the resurrection part of this. Since you were raised with Christ, Paul says, and the false self then has this encounter with the life and love of Jesus. God comes to us while we were still impossibly stuck, um, impossibly self-referenced, God comes to our false self and offers his self to us. That is the, what it means when we have Jesus offering his spirit to us. And, and the spirit of God is offered to us. And if God's spirit, who is both living and loving, truly does live in us, then the false self's role becomes redundant. All of the ways that I am trying to survive with lesser strategies, the, the Holy Spirit in me is already doing those same things, but way better than the false self could ever do it. So we're free to begin letting that old way go. And then as a result, new ways of being begin to bloom in us. They begin to come alive. Both wholeness and holiness are at work in us. And so I've already mentioned this a couple of times, this idea of the false self, but just as a reminder, the idea here is that apart from God's Spirit in us, we all live from a fundamentally false self. Mulholland describes it as fearful and defensive, possessive, protective, manipulative, indulgent-making, Distinction-making, I'm telling you, we see this distinction-making thing all over our world today. Destructive, the false self is destructive. That's how the false self is. That's how we are in the world apart from the life-giving and dwelling Holy Spirit doing something new inside of us. But at Pentecost, we are given a new spirit for the sake of transforming our lives into to new creations. We are given God's Holy Spirit, and, and as a result, we are brought into a newness of life. And so, uh, we see this pattern playing out of how that new life, that Christ self, is born and matured in us. Now, the first parts of the pattern, this idea of getting caught up in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, these are fairly ethereal and mysterious concepts. I mean, what does it really mean? How do I really know if I'm caught up in the death of Christ, if I'm caught up in the life of Christ? 
But now, as we move into the final two parts of the pattern, Paul gets much more tangible and practical. And the idea is this, that if a Holy Spirit does live in us, if Pentecost is true, then certain things will no longer belong and therefore will need to be taken off or taken out of my life. And other new things will be put on to say yes to a life that is hidden with Christ in God is going to evolve, abandoning some virtues and putting on, sorry, abandoning some vices and putting on some virtues. And so Paul tells us to put off, therefore, some lesser ways that no longer belong. Put off, therefore. And if only it were as easy, right? It's just putting off, like just taking that off and leaving it behind. But it's much more uh, involved in that. And so, you know, other ways it's translated is that we have to put these things to death. They have to be killed off. In fact, the, the phrase Paul uses here is unique. He has this word that he uses 42 times in his letters for kill, to kill something. But that's not the word or the phrase he uses here. Instead, he does this, this different phrase to, to put to death or to put off. And he only uses this phrase two times. And essentially what it is is to stop resuscitating something. The idea here is that this old false self, this flesh life, this way that is estranged from God is already in the process of fading away, but we are the ones that keep on reanimating it, re-energizing it, resuscitating it. We keep bringing it back to life, right? By breathing life into these old survival strategies, these old practices, we end up trying to raise back up the very thing that is in the process of dying, right? And so we are called to just let it go. <laughs> Stop reanimating what God is putting off of our lives. And so how do we do that? What is it that we are to put off? Um, Paul gives us these two vice lists, these lists of things, behaviors, habits, practices, ways of being. And, uh, and he gives us uh, two lists in the passage that Beth just read, and they're linked in the center with this uh, ominous phrase about the wrath of God coming. And we've kind of read that passage a handful of times over the last few weeks. We'll actually talk about it here in a few minutes. I've conveniently ignored talking about the wrath of God as long as I could, but it's, it's time. We've got to face the music, everyone. And so, um, so Paul gives us these lists, and we could summarize them as broken relationships and broken violence. And uh, I want to begin, as we talk about these lists, as we work through them, by saying that these are not lists about those sinners out there. This applies to all of us. This is what life in the false self looks like. And similarly, these are not arbitrary lists of bad things. And I think it's really important that we name that because sometimes we read Paul, and he does this sort of thing a lot. He just suddenly starts, you know, naming a bunch of uh, uh, bad behaviors or, or sins or ways of being that are not healthy or helpful. And, and sometimes it feels like, where's this coming from? And are these random arbitrary lists? Why is he picking that but not picking that? And I think particularly when we're talking about sexuality in our world today, we, we live in a moment where it's really easy to pick a handful of sexual sins that don't apply to me but apply to others and use those as the way of differentiating me against everybody else, right? And so we see that happening often in our world. And I want to say Paul is not doing that. This is not a happenstance list. Paul is operating at a deeper level here, an intentional level. There is a structure to why he has arranged these lists how he has. And so let's get into them. In the first list, 
Paul is moving from fruit issues down to root issues. He is starting with outer behavior, sexual immorality, but then he is tracing that upstream to reveal the inner dynamics that are operating underneath that behavior. And essentially, Paul's argument here is that sexual immorality is actually ultimately about greedy idolatry. The idea here is, I have this insatiable desire, this want, but I see it as a need, and I need it now. And so I'm going to take it, right? This is greed. And below the greed is this sense of, I do not really trust that what God has given is sufficient for what I need in life, and therefore I must take more than that. And so sexual immorality, if you follow it down, is a lack of trust that what God has given is sufficient, and I feel like I need more. That same dynamic plays out in our economy. It plays out in our consumerism. It plays out in our spending habits. It plays out in all kinds of places where we don't trust that what God has given is enough. And so I live in a non-God story, an idolatrous story, in which I have to take for myself, right? And so this is not an attack on the gift of sexuality properly stewarded. Instead, Paul is getting at this idea that sexuality can be hijacked by our consumerism and our assumption that anything I want, I can get as long as I you know, pay the price for it or as long as I uh, you know, take it. And so he's getting at this deeper idea. This is about greed. This is about idolatry. This is about Adam and Eve all over again. I take the thing that I, uh, you know, think I need because I do not trust that what God has given is enough. And so what Paul is saying here is that sexuality, when it is not properly stewarded, can become a primary context that the false self uses to manipulate and destructively relate to other people. And, and there, that demand that I make on others, it wounds me and it wounds others. It deteriorates and dehumanizes others. And as a result, it leads to broken relationships, right? It, it leads to what Martin Buber, the, the great German theologian, calls an I-it relationship, right? Where I see you as an object that I can manipulate and use for my own purposes rather than seeing you as a thou created in the image of God inherent with your own dignity. So Paul is moving us through that. And then we get to the second list. This one, he moves in the opposite direction, this idea of broken violence. This one, it, it moves from the inner dynamics toward outer behavior, how it shows up in the world. And here's how Mulholland describes this. Let's just imagine, you know, you're, you're just doing your thing, you're living your life, and I come up to you, and it becomes clear in the course of our conversation that I have an agenda for you. Right? You all know this moment where somebody has decided something they want you to do, and you begin to feel manipulated by me. Well, what are you going to do in response to that? You're going to resist me, right? In fact, a lot of times what happens is now your false self kicks in, and now you're trying to out-manipulate my manipulation, so we're in this tug-of-war about this. Now, I don't like that you have not received the plan I have for your life. <laughs> I'm angry about this. That anger when it is untended, becomes more generalized. This is what happens with anger, right? We've all seen this. I'm angry about that thing, and then a year goes by, five years goes by, I don't remember what the thing is anymore, but now I'm just angry at you. I'm generalized anger at you. I now have this wrath that begins to become aimed at your whole person, and soon I grow malicious and I desire your harm. 
and I begin to speak towards you or about you in slanderous and abusive ways. We see this playing out all the time on social media, for example. We see it playing out in politics all the time. We see it playing out in war. Because if I can treat you de as a dehumanized person, if I can make you less than a three-dimensional person made in the image of God, now I can justify my anger towards you because you're not really creating the image of God. You're just this thing I can be malicious about, right? And so it's a way of justifying our violence. It leads to broken violence. It's Cain and Abel all over again. And so life in the false self leads to broken relationships and broken violence. They become the primary context the false self uses to try to self-center the world. And when I am operating like that, I cannot be God's person to you. You cannot be God's person to me. And, and those broken ways break the world. They're anti-Holy Spirit. They're anti-Pentecost. They're anti the healing of the world. And this is why Paul begins to link these kinds of ideas with this idea of the wrath of God. Starts to share, starts to shed light on this. If we remember way back in the beginning of the story, we, we had this notion that God has created the world with this overwhelming force of love. And, and there is a counterforce of sin that is blowing the opposite direction in the world. But God created a good world, and God charged us with the stewardship of that good world. And if we were to list, you know, 45 sermon topics, probably the wrath of God would be on the bottom of my list of things I would like to talk to you about, right? It's, it's not my favorite notion. But we need to let God off the hook for a minute, because when we consider God's good world, and we look around ourselves, there are things to be angry about. There are things to feel some wrath about. Because God created this beautiful, flourishing, whole world, and look at what we've done with it, right? Of course God is angry in the face of great injustice, great abuse, great dehumanization, great violence. Of course, God is seriously opposed to the ways our destruction and dysfunction desecrate what he created. Of course he is, right? David uh, Darnell makes guitars now. He started a, a business making guitars, buy a guitar from Darnell Family Guitars. But let's imagine David had crafted this beautiful guitar, and it's, it's, he spent significant amounts of time and energy and craftsmanship making this beautiful thing that creates beautiful music. And then imagine I come up to that and I poorly handle it. Or, or worse, I intentionally do violence to it. I break it, I pick it up and throw it across the room. David's gonna be mad at me. He's gonna be wrathful at me. <laughs> He's gonna be angry at me. And he has every right to be because he created something and I mistreated his creation, right? And so we would not be able to trust God's coherence at all if he was not angry about things that are anti-love. Because God is love, right? So as we talk about the wrath of God, it's important that we differentiate. God is not wrath. God is love. And so if wrath shows up in God, it is an expression of love and restoration because that is who God is. God does not change, right? And so, but there is, there is this sense 
of uh, God's, God's holiness and God's love showing up with proper opposition to all that we are trying to uh, mishandle in the world, right? Um, I want to make two theological distinctions, though, as we talk about this that, that feel really important. And, and as we say this, let me just note, I don't fully understand God's wrath, right? We're in the category of deep mystery here. So, so I'm trying to put some ideas around this, but but I cannot comprehensively explain this to us. But I think one thing that we do see in the way Paul talks about this is that the wrath of God is a present natural consequence in this passage. It is not a future vindictive outpouring. And this is a critical distinction, right? Imagine it this way, like if God's love is that gale force wind blowing the world this way, and I am insistent that I'm going to operate this way, I am moving against the grain of God's creation, and that will splinter me in the process, right? It will fracture me. And so when Paul says the wrath of God is coming upon disobedient people, he's speaking in the present tense. He doesn't say one day God's wrath will explode on disobedience. He says it's already coming. It's currently coming. In other words, for Paul, the wrath of God is simply a description of what life is already like when we insist on living opposed to God's reality. It's just the way the world is, right? I'm moving in that counterforce of sin that fractures the world. Well, of course, I'm going to get caught up in all that fractures, right? I'm going to find myself fractured as well. This is why we say the false self is destructive. But, but we need to say with that, then, that, that that does not mean that God's wrath is vindictive or violent or punitive or explosive, and it is hard for us to hear the word wrath without assuming those things, because that's the way I am wrathful, right? When I'm wrathful, that's what it looks like. You poke the bear one too many times, and something explodes, and we assume God is like that, and it scares us, and we don't know how to make that coherent with God who is love. And, and God's kindness and God's forgiveness. And so we end up with this really split, schizophrenic sense of who God is. But God's wrath is different than that. He does not lash out. The way we know God's wrath is different than human wrath is because two verses later, Paul says, if you want to be created in the image of God, you must put off wrath, right? One of the things he wants us to put off is our understanding of human wrath because it is contrary to the image of God. So when God is wrathful, that must not be what that means. And in fact, if we look at it in the Greek, Paul uses a different word for wrath when he's talking about human wrath versus God's wrath. And the difference is this, when God is wrathful, God's wrath causes him to act, to move toward. My wrath causes me to harm and hurt. But God's wrath causes him to take it upon himself to save the story, to be wounded rather than to wound. And he moves toward the story in order to restore and heal and save the day. All right, I want to get practical at the end here. Uh, Verse 9 and 10, Paul says, um, you have stripped off the old self with its practices. And there's two things here. There is that way of being, that old way of being, but there's also then the practices of it. Uh, and, and it's important that we put off both of these things. And how do we do that? The Christian life is going to involve a lifelong cooperation of detaching myself from that old survival system. That old, what I think of as a life support system that is actually a death support system. And so it's going to call for more than just a simple change of belief or a simple change of behavior modification. we got to go way deeper. That's why Paul's taking us way deeper. And so here's two practices that we could consider 
uh, that might help us in this. And the first I'm going to call discernment, uh, or I put in parentheses there, self-awareness. I, I want to note there, uh, I'm not just talking about like false self-awareness. I'm talking about like awareness of the deep self that Christ is rising in me. And, and this is why we need counselors and therapists and spiritual directors and good friends and pastors because we need help noticing what is happening deep inside of us. And we start cultivating the practice of going, why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? What was happening in me such that I felt the need to dot, dot, dot? Why did I react that way? What is the story I'm living from? And how is it not true in light of the good story of Jesus? We need help noticing these things. And then we begin to notice. And, and we start to see how that old self is showing up. Well, now we can release some of its practices. And we do that through detachment, through surrender, through abandoning the lesser ways of the false self and trusting in God's better story. And the way that shows up is in the very real context of our lives. It's in our workplaces. It's in our marriage or singleness. It's in our parenting. It's in our friendships. And so here's how Mulholland uh, kind of winds down his thinking on this, and I just want to give his challenge to us. Is he says, what would it look like in each context of our life to do for Jesus' sake what we formerly did for our own? Like, if it is true that we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God, how do I show up to my parenting for Jesus' sake? rather than for the sake of what I think I need to get out of this? How do I show up to my work for Jesus' sake instead of what I think I need to get out of this, right? And, and here's a way he offers that we could practically uh, be reminded of that. He, he talks about Paul's introduction to this letter where Paul says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And, and he says, what might it look like to replace the word Paul with your name and replace apostle with the various roles of your life, right? I, Jordan, a husband of Jesus Christ through the will of God. I, Jordan, a pastor of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Whatever that may be for you. So that when you walk into these places, you are reminded that you have been crucified with Christ. And, and that old life no longer lives, but something new is rising up inside of you. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are birthing new creation in us. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way in the midst of how strong our old habits and practices can feel. And we are well acquainted with the idea of going against the grain of your love and all the ways that wounds us and wounds the world. We ask for your forgiveness and mercy. We ask that more and more the Spirit of God would be our true operating system, our way of being, that we could be deeply renovated in our interior life for the sake of showing up to others differently in our exterior life. We pray this in the name of Jesus.